Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. What determines the value of a company's stock price? The traditional wisdom is that it has to do with dividends and profits, but Dr. Benjamin Jansen, an assistant professor of economics, proposes a new measurement. His research indicates that anticipated cash flow growth can be used to determine asset pricing. His report is titled Cash Flow Growth and Stock Return, and we'll discuss it with him after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The Tennessee Department of Health and Rutherford County government announced Friday that MTSU alum LaShan Dixon, classes of 2007, 10, 11, and 14, has been named the director of the Rutherford County Public Health Department. Dixon has been serving in an interim director capacity since previous director Dana Garrett passed away unexpectedly last October. Dixon, who has a bachelor's degree in exercise science and a master's degree in health and human performance from the university, was a 2020 recipient of MTSU's Young Alumni Achievement Award. Dixon began her career with the county as a part-time outreach representative in October of 2008. In October of 2011, she was promoted to a full-time position as health educator too, until moving into the assistant public health director position in July of 2017. And the Tennessee Consumer Outlook Index crept back into positive territory in March to 1, but that's up considerably from a negative 58 score in December, as reports the Office of Consumer Research in the Jennings A. Jones College of Business at MTSU. Even as consumers are more comfortable shopping in public, 73% still think it's very or extremely important people wear masks when out in public around other people. When asked about concerns or worries they have for the future of the nation and or the economy, more than two-thirds, 68%, say they were concerned about the potential for higher taxes in the future. Further, 52% are worried about higher unemployment and economic instability. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Ben, welcome. Thank you for being with us today on the program. Hi, thank you for having me. How did you test your hypothesis? What was your methodology? Sure. So uh, the basic premise of the paper is that uh, a firm's fundamental performance as measured through its cash flow uh, is going to be a good metric to estimate its value and therefore estimate its returns. Um, and this is an incredibly important endeavor for companies and investors um, for many reasons. For uh, the company side, figuring out the value of an asset is incredibly important for figuring out where companies are going to allocate their resources. Uh, and similar for investors, they want to figure out where can they get their best return on investment? Where's the best place to put their own savings? Uh, so that was basically the starting point for this paper. And so um, in financial research, we have some data sets that are pretty commonly used. Um, so you know, a lot of hypotheses can be replicated and tested in, in, in different ways. Um, so basically what I did was downloaded uh, historical financial statement information as well as uh, stock return uh, data sets. And uh, once I get those, basically I go through some of the literature standard methods for determining whether or not there's an association between what I hypothesized and what's actually in the data. And so uh, in testing my hypotheses, uh, I start off with um, what are called just 
univariate portfolio sorts. So basically I replicate, you know, if investors uh, had historically held on to these stocks that I had recommended, how would their portfolio have performed? Um, so that's basically the first litmus test for evaluating whether or not your hypothesis in, in, in this uh, body of research is, is well-founded. Is an investor going to get a, a good return on their investment following your suggestions? And that looked to be the case over the course of the sample period. Um, so basically I, I create these hypothetical portfolios and replicate how investors' performance would look like over that time. Um, I also do uh, various other tests that's used in the literature, but that's usually the most uh, uh, practical way to carry about this hypothesis testing. Just as if uh, you were a real investor doing this with your own money, except what you were doing was taking uh, the statistical information that was relevant and trying to find out how it would work out over a period of time, right? Exactly, exactly right, yes. It's got a, a bit of a problem with it being completely historical information, right? Only time will tell moving forward how well this, this uh, hypothesis holds. Why might dividends and profits be uh, too limiting as means of determining the price of a company stock? Uh, so that's a really great question and one of the motivations for my paper. So uh, there's a couple limitations for both of those uh, methods to try and value a company. So dividends are really nice if a company does pay dividends. Uh, the problem with that is there has been a, a steady decline over time with companies paying dividends. Around a century ago, it used to be the case that it was the standard for all companies to be paying dividends to shareholders. But that's really changed over the last century, and we have increasingly fewer companies that are paying out dividends. Right? So if the metric you want to use to value a company no longer exists, then it's not a method you can use in the first place. And the second reason that dividends aren't as good of a metric is uh, theoretically as a shareholder, your claim to the company is based on claimable cash flows that the company is generating, not necessarily what the company pays out in the form of dividends. Uh, in other words, dividends is basically a subset of a shareholder's claim to the company's value. Uh, it, it doesn't capture the whole picture there. Profits, uh, on the flip side, they're uh, arguably a little bit better of a metric. Right? Profits are the accounting value being added or destroyed over a given time period, uh, basically the net income of a company. They're the bottom line of a company's income statement. And so very often that's what people look at when they're determining value of a company, right? Uh, first glance through a company's financial statements will show you their net income. That's um, something that a lot of executives' compensation is tied to. So that's something that managers in a company find very important. But uh, again, there are problems with net income relative to cash flow. First and foremost, net income is going to be based on an accrual basis, as all accounting items are, which in itself can cause a bit of a problem when we think about the time value of money. Time value of money is probably the most important concept in finance. Uh, what time value of money basically says is money is worth different amounts over time. Right? So, for example, $100 today buys much less than $100 50 years ago. And similarly, moving forward into the future, $100 will buy less 50 years from now how much a nominal dollar value will actually get you in value, how much you can exchange that set amount of cash for in a given time changes across time. So it's important for us to adjust for the timing of when cash changes hands so that we can actually reflect the purchasing power of that cash at that time. So with profits, it doesn't necessarily reflect when cash is changing hands. So it basically, it, it partially ignores this time value of money and with cash flow, basically we're adjusting net income to reflect when cash 
is changing hands. Right? And there's an inherent value in the timing of that cash flow. So by adjusting net income to reflect cash flows, we're able to get a better picture on when cash is changing hands. And then that allows us to apply time value of money principles to the value of those cash flows. Timing of the cash flow is incredibly important and cash flow is a better reflection of timing of cash changing hands than net income is. Net income has an implicit promise of receiving that, that profit. Uh, so because this is all based on a accrual basis, uh, when an economic event occurs, you're not necessarily receiving the money for that, right? Companies make sales on credit pretty often. So it's not uncommon for companies to assume that they're going to be receiving their money sometime in the future. For the most part, that works out pretty well. Uh, but a good example of times when that might not work out was during the start of the pandemic, right? If companies had made sales on credit and the customers that had purchased those products are, are experiencing financial difficulty, they're going to have much more difficult time paying back for that product that they initially purchased. What cash flow is also doing is adjusting for rather than the promise of receiving payment, it's actually reflecting that payment. Uh, so for those reasons, cash flow is going to be a, a better metric than that income. I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic because even though it does not fall within the scope of your paper, I was going to ask you how an, a, a worldwide anomaly like the COVID-19 pandemic, which has forced a lot of businesses to change the way they interact with their customers for safety's sake, affect the way an economist might crunch the numbers when determining cash flow growth and its efficacy in determining the stock price. Mm -hmm. When we're trying to evaluate a portfolio, the structuring optimal portfolio, there really are many factors that go into it. So I am simplifying, I am making a lot of assumptions and saying, you know, it's cash flow growth that is driving the return. Uh, really, it's a part of the return process. So when we're trying to figure out the value of an asset, uh, first and foremost, we're trying to figure out what the expected cash flows that asset is trying to generate. And then applying that time value money framework that I had mentioned earlier and adjusting the timing of those cash flows. With something like a pandemic, there are two ways that it generally can affect the value of an asset. It's directly affecting the company's cash flows. So for example, uh, with airline companies, they saw a huge drop in customers coming through, right? I think uh, at the bottom, there was, I, I think, uh, somewhere around 10% travelers relative to a year before the start of the pandemic. Something like that is going to significantly hit the company's value through a pure cash flow perspective, hurting the company's finances. Uh, on the flip side of things, it can also increase the riskiness of the company. So when we're adjusting for the time value of money, uh, often we try to consider the riskiness of the investment as the implicit discount rate that we're applying to a company's cash flows. What we're doing with the discount rate is basically using that to adjust for when the timing of that cash flows is occurring. We can kind of think of a, a discount rate as being the mere opposite of the compounding rate that we're applying to portfolios, say, if we're considering uh, retirement, trying to forecast how our own savings are going to grow over time. The discount rate is the opposite of that compounding rate. If we have savings today, we're compounding it into the future. If we're looking at future cash flows, we're discounting those cash flows back to today. Part of what goes into that discount rate is the riskiness of the security. So in the case of a, of a pandemic, the risk might be reflective of how well is this company, how well is this industry prepared to go into this sort of shock? And for industries that aren't as well prepared or that are going to be uh, more significantly adversely affected by the pandemic, it will likely increase the riskiness of those companies and therefore increase the discount rate that we have to apply to these already lowered cash flows. 
We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Benjamin Jansen, an assistant professor of economics, about his paper, Cash Flow Growth and Stock Return, and it has to do with whether dividends and profits, the traditional way of determining a company's stock price, is preferable to using cash flow growth as a way of measuring a company's stock price. Do unprofitable firms necessarily have lower returns on stock? I believe, I remember reading in the paper that sometimes firms will sell off assets just to keep the stock price propped up. Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's something I also look at uh, in the paper is looking at companies with low cash flow growth relative to high cash flow growth. Uh, Looking at the compounded rate of return, uh, companies in the lowest uh, 20% are basically getting an average rate of return of about 1.1% per year. Right? So in other words, that's less than inflation. So over the long run, companies with low cash flow growth are generating relatively low returns. They're not even beating inflation. On the flip side, companies in the top 20% of cash flow growth are earning about 11.1%. For comparison, the uh, overall stock market grows at an average rate of about 7% a year. So companies in the highest 20% are getting more than 50% higher returns relative to the overall market. Whereas companies in the bottom are earning around uh, 1%, uh, 1.5%, and uh, that's gonna be less than inflation on average. Uh, there is much less potential for stock price growth for companies that are generating low cash flow. As to your question about selling off assets, that is something that companies often try to do, but uh, really for many reasons. Optimally, the best reason for a company to sell off uh, a part of itself is if that section of the company is underperforming, and they think that maybe there's going to be better synergy with that asset with another company. So if a subset of the company is underperforming, it's in the firm's best interest to sell it off to someone that thinks they can run that section of the company better. Does the time frame or the type of company matter in determining whether cash flow growth works as a measurement of asset pricing? I, I break my sample period up into several different decades and find that the estimates are pretty similar across time. Um, and I do also find that it tends to hold across industries as well. Um, so a lot of the research in asset markets often excludes uh, financial companies and utilities because they're structurally different companies are highly regulated and they're going to have functionally different uh, operations and assets in place to fund themselves. I do find that despite these structural differences across industries, I find that this relationship holds across all the different industries I've sampled. The so-called blue chip stocks, the ones that are said to be the most stable, solid, reliable investments, do they necessarily always have good cash flow growth? 
Not necessarily, but they are generally more likely to. So I haven't looked uh, directly into the life cycle yet of cash flow growth. So that's going to be part of my next steps in this research. I can't speak into too much detail about that question, but basically I find that size in itself isn't a great predictor of cash flow growth. Uh, while you would think on average, larger companies would have the more stable growth, that tends to be the case that they have basically middle of the road growth on average. So basically they're not falling into either extremes of really low cash flow growth or really high cash flow growth, generally more middle of the road performance. So this might be an area that people could use your study as a jumping off point from which to conduct further research in a related vein, right? Absolutely, yes. Why are fewer firms paying dividends as opposed to what they used to do? There's a lot of speculation and research in this, and I don't think there is a conclusive answer. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I think there's the more theoretical argument that companies are going to be more well-run uh, if their internal return on investment is pretty good. Uh, basically, the idea goes, uh, a company's profits can either be retained within the company or paid out in the form of dividends to shareholders. Those are their two options with money that they generate. Uh, if companies have great investment opportunities, the best thing they can do with their profits is just save it within themselves, reinvest within themselves, and continue growing the company. So I, I think that logic has uh, taken a better place with companies trying to focus more on retaining their profits, retaining within themselves, and growing the company rather than immediately distributing any profits that they generate to shareholders. Uh, so I think that's one reason. I think another reason is dividends are an implicit form of capital constraint to companies. So this is basically tied to that first reason, but basically companies that aren't tying up their cash and paying dividends are just, they have more implicit freedom to pursue the projects that they want. Uh, it, it's in many companies' better interest to have the freedom to allocate their capital in the best ways that they see fit. And we've also seen that over this time, there's been a large increase in share buybacks, which functionally work in a similar way. So with the share buyback, basically companies are reducing the amount of shares they have outstanding, and that increases the profits attributable to each share, the cash flows attributable each share, which will increase the per share price. So another way to allocate extra capital to shareholders would be just to repurchase outstanding shares, increase the profitability per share. Um, so this has been seen as a bit of a substitute to paying dividends. And it's a, it's a little bit better than dividends because there's not this expectation that companies will continue these buyback policies um, whenever they have significant profits. Buybacks basically function as a substitute that aren't constraining the company as much as dividends would. Traditionally, a financial advisor will assess a client's preferences for risk based on the client's age, income, and other factors, and mm -hmm. suggest you, you go into a TD Ameritrade or Edward Jones or whoever your guy is, and suggest a relatively low-risk investment like bonds or a relatively high-risk investment like growth and in income or international stocks, depending upon the client. Is this a poor way to determine the worth of the stocks based on the client's tolerance for risk? Um, that's, again, going to be another extension looking at how risk interrelates with cash flow growth. Um, so if you were to go into a brokerage, uh, cash flow growth is not a popular strategy. Uh, profitability is one of the ones that are very often used in structuring portfolios. Um, so there's not going to be an easy way to access uh, this information yet because it's not as prominently available in any sort of standard portfolio structures that will off will, that will likely be offered to clients. Um, so another part of my motivation for this paper was basically the understanding that companies' goal, 
the company's goal is to generate value. Um, so to the extent that companies are capable of generating value, that's basically what's driving that company's long run performance is just its capacity to generate that value. Um, so it's basically a little bit contrary to the idea that it's fundamentally only the investors risk preferences that will be driving uh, the expected return of a security, right? this whole risk return relationship, um, uh, basically companies have to generate value. So after companies generate value, then there is some consideration for the risk profile for potential investors. Uh, in the case of cash flow growth, right? I, I only looked at stocks, which are the riskiest securities available um, to, to most investors. So uh, this is a risky investment in general. But focusing on companies that are generating value over the long run tends to be um, a viable way to structure portfolio in terms of uh, generating high returns and also having a, a similar risk profile to the overall market. Um, I, 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 again, I didn't get into this too much into the paper. It's something that I just recently started looking at. But if you look at the risk return performance of high cash flow growth relative to the market, it actually looks a little bit better. So if you're looking for higher returns without potentially getting uh, too much more risk within the equity market, then companies that are generating high cash flows seem to uh, offer a better risk return profile than the broader market. If the uh, information on cash flow growth of the companies were more readily available, uh, do you think that that would be a game changer in terms of the way investors determine what they want to put their money into? I think so. Um, yeah, I think it would be great if there were uh, products structured around trying to find companies that are generating the most cash flow for shareholders, because that's fundamentally over the long run what matters. Um, if a company is not generating cash flow over a given time, basically, we'll see that they're likely to just fail. Um, so you know, that's the fundamental resource that companies need to be generating for themselves. Uh, there are external capital markets they can go to to raise capital to fund themselves for a while, but uh, if they don't get to a point where they're generating that capital internally for themselves, generating that cash flow internally, uh, then they're not going to be sustainable and likely they'll uh, eventually fail. Uh, so I, I think it would be a great product for investors to have access to companies that are generating cash flow because it looks like fundamentally these are companies that are sustaining themselves and generating solid returns for their shareholders over the long run. Time for one more break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about cash flow growth and stock return, a paper written by Dr. Benjamin Jansen, who is an assistant professor of economics 
and we're talking about cash flow growth as a way to determine the price of stocks as opposed to dividends and profits. When it comes to cash flow growth, does the financial advisor's maxim that looking at long-term results instead of reacting to temporary ups and downs is the best way to go? I mean, these guys who spend all day on the computer day trading, reacting to every little bump, just kill me. I, I don't know how they do it or why they do it, except that it's become something of an obsession to them. But if you were to conduct the same uh, uh, research that you did with somebody's real money, as opposed to a hypothetical portfolio, it would have to be a longitudinal study, right? Over time in order to have the best credibility, right? Mm -hmm. So that is functionally what I did. So. Uh, these were hypothetical portfolios, but they were assuming that you're holding on to these companies and getting the returns of the underlying stocks that you're assuming to be holding. Uh, but yeah, it, it is absolutely true. People that are uh, day trading and more reactionary than uh, holding on for the long run are going to face a lot more, uh, much more cost to that strategy, right? Um, getting in and out of securities, people have a tendency to not be good at timing. Uh, there's been a lot of research that shows that retail traders have a tendency to underperform the market by several percentage points on average. Um, so between passively investing relative to actively trading and spending a lot of time searching through securities, generally passively investing is going to be the best strategy over the long run. And what uh, peer review journal did you say has accepted your paper? Oh, yes. Uh, my paper was accepted at the Journal of Financial Research. So we can expect to see it published there in what time frame? How soon? Uh, so it was accepted in January and it's going through the final editor, editor, uh, editorial process. So hopefully within the next year, so we should see that published. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. Dr. Benjamin Jansen, uh, who's an assistant professor of economics. Thank you for being on MTSU on the record. Thank you for having me. It was great speaking with you. We'll be right back. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. MTSU officials and guests just gathered for a groundbreaking ceremony for the new School of Concrete and Construction Management building students will begin utilizing in 15 months on the campus's southeast side. Professor and former director Heather Brown shares more. This day is a culmination of 25 years of support from donors, alumni, and employers who truly believe in our mission here at MTSU of educating the next concrete and construction workforce. I thank the president, our donors, and Governor Lee for putting together a funding package that will catapult our department into a state-of-the-art destination for students around the Southeast and even the country.
Our designer, Orcutt Winslow, and all of their consultants and engineers, our contractor, Hort Construction, and our hardworking campus planning staff, Jamie Brewer and Bill Waits, truly put our dream uh, to the test. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.